All right, how's the gambler? Have we finished it? The gambler. Have you read it? As Samuel Jackson never said. Okay. Um, yes, no? Cough? That you haven't. <laughs> My eyes are closed. No coffee. All right, good. Um, so uh, we were starting to compare and contrast it with the Noble Hustle. Um, part, why are you laughing? What? It's just funny, the coffee. The coffee, but no one coughed. Were you suppressing a cough? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, one of the things we were talking about was the difference. Um, but it's also worth talking about the similarities between poker and roulette, between, therefore, between uh, the gambler and the noble hustle. Uh, we were talking last class about Ainsley and hyperbolic discounting, and we haven't really yet talked about the MacGuffin, but what's a MacGuffin? It beats a stuffing out of egg McMuffin. No, you're too young for that uh, slogan. That was a Burger King slogan. We beat the stuffing out of Egg McMuffin. See? Rhyme, literature, poetry. <laughs> no, you don't like it? All right. It's not bad. No, it's not bad. Yeah. You can't get sued for that? For using, no, for saying that you're better than your opponent, than your, than your rival? Yeah, no, no, they say TM. So you can use it then. You can use it as long as you acknowledge that you're... That it's not, that you're not claiming to be selling egg McMuffins. You're claiming to be um, selling something that beats the stuffing out of egg McMuffin. So that's okay. No, they legally prove that claim. Though. <laughs> you can't, and that's the point because you can't because it's not open to legal proof or disproof. It's not a claim that you have to because it can't be proved or disproved. It can't. Uh, it's it's not um, a claim that you, that can be. Uh, sued for false advertising. It's like saying, you know, ours is the our our vacation spot is the most fun. No, I don't think so. Um, you can't sue someone for for making a claim that's subjective. So, and that's a subjective claim. Um, that actually turns out to be true about Brexit. Did you guys hear this? This struck me as just totally amazing. The Brexit referendum was so badly put when the people voted on it. That it ha that it is not legally binding, and because no one knows what it meant because it was so badly drafted, and because it's not legally binding, no one can sue to stop Brexit on the grounds that the referendum w um, couldn't be the reason to that 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 British law doesn't make a referendum enough. So beca because the, the referendum was badly put legally, it can't be stopped. If it had been put well legally, then people could sue to stop it, and it would be stopped. But it was, it was put so badly that no one knows what it means, and therefore it can't be stopped, and therefore we're looking at disaster on Friday, just so you know. If you want to visit England, do it now. <laughs> so, like today, later, after class. So... Same with beating the stuff out of Egg McMuffin. What's a MacGuffin? Isn't it kind of like an arbitrary like, object that you're chasing, trying to 
We talked about it in film, right? Yes, we did. But it's uh, pretty much kind of when you go on, let's say if you're addicted to something and you're, you're in a cycle mm-hmm. or you're trying to win a cedra, there'd be that cedra. It's like, it's kind of an abstraction. Like there's no, it's not a concrete object that you're chasing. Okay, so, so it's a, it was a term that was popularized by Hitchcock. Hitchcock, not actually invented by him, but people always say it was invented by him. But it was a term that I believe he learned from one of his cameramen. And what a, so the story that Hitchcock tells, I don't know if it's good or not, but he tells it over and over again, and who am I to doubt it, is that two travelers are on a train going to Scotland, and one of them asks for help from the other one. They've just met in their in their car and says, can you help me put this box up on the rack? And so the other one helps him and then says, it's heavy, what is it? And the first traveler says, that? Oh, that's my MacGuffin. And the second one says, a MacGuffin? What's a MacGuffin? And the first one says, a MacGuffin is a device for trapping lions in Scotland. <laughs> and the first one said, but there are no lions in Scotland. And, or the second one says that, and the first one says, yep, and that's not a MacGuffin. So that's Hitchcock's little story. Maybe he tells it well. I wonder if I could, actually I should look on YouTube if there's an interview of him telling it, because he told it in interview after interview after interview. Um, so that's not helpful to you, it doesn't look like, or maybe it's too early in the morning, or maybe you need your first drink of the day. But the um, idea in storytelling, and this is something that we'll see in the Maltese Falcon, is that we want two things out of a story. When we are readers, and part of what we're doing now in looking at stories about gambling, both a semi-false story like The Gambler and a more or less true story like The Noble Hustle, is we're really interested in stories about gambling, or we're going to be interested in stories about gambling, and the relationship of gambling to narrative. And that's something that Ainsley is in a different way interested in as well. So I think, I think Ainsley and the Noble Hustle really go well together. At any rate, when you are interested in a story, when you're reading a page turner, do you guys know the term potboiler? Anyone know that term? So it's an older term for page turner. It's basically a story where there's always something happening, where the, where the pot is always bubbling where there's never any, any time when there's not excitement going on. So in a page turner or a pot boiler, what you're always anxious about is what's going to happen to the characters that you're rooting for, right? That's the whole point is that stuff is going to happen to them and they're going to be in danger and sometimes that danger is going to be um, terrible and you're not going to see how they can get out of that danger. And in fact, sometimes they'll die, like in tragedies. But even just in exciting suspense stories that end happily, there is nevertheless anxiety as you're watching. Will they, what will happen? Will, for example, Reddington be executed at 12.01 a.m. on the blacklist, as he, spoiler, almost, almost is? Is this going to happen? And if you think about it, there's something a little bit odd psychologically 
about the way we put ourselves through this. That is, why would you, if you want the main character, if you want your character, if you want the character you're rooting for to do okay, why not go watch a movie or go read a book where everything works out at every minute? So there was a knock on the door, and I opened it up, and there was someone with a million dollars who gave it to me. And then the next day, it was a beautiful day, and I was feeling great because I'd just woken up. And I went downstairs, and there was someone I didn't know standing there, but she gave me flowers. So why not just have a book in which it's all nice things? Why can't we, why, why does that not give you pleasure to read a book in which everything is nice? Brooklyn 99 is, is very close to that. Everyone is so nice and everything is so nice. Yeah, but the, but people get into trouble. Holt may not, you know, he's he's being treated shittily by his superior officers, and um, there there there's there's an argument. I mean, it's all about arguments, and it's true. All the characters are nice. That's a nice thing about Brooklyn Nine Nine is that all the characters are nice. Do you guys watch it? So a nice thing about it is that all the characters are nice, but they're even though Gina leaves, but the um, there's still anxiety about what will happen. Um, will the bad guy get away? Why did um, Andy Samberg make the mistake that he made? And so forth. So um, is this disgusting new captain going to really do these terrible innovations that are going to break the spirit of the unit? You know, they're not, it's not big deals, and everyone's always in a good mood on Brooklyn Nine-Nine, but there's still tension. There's still, there's still a story. And stories are always about worrying, aren't they? Can you think of a good story that you've ever read or seen that isn't about worrying? I mean, just think of any fairy tale. Will Hansel and Gretel live? Will the witch eat them? Will anyone wake up Sleeping Beauty? There's a... There's a witch that says that she is going to die on her 16th birthday. Is she actually going to die, or is there any way to save her? Is Little Red Riding Hood going to be deceived by the wolf disguised as her grandmother? I mean, we know they won't, but little kids don't. And I remember telling my son he wanted a really scary story when he was like three years old. This isn't Julian, this is Daniel, whom I think you guys don't know at all. Um, and um, so I was making up a really scary story, and it just wasn't scary enough for him. And so I told him a really, really, really scary story. I came up with a really scary, I mean, I could scare a three-year-old. It was great. And suddenly he just looked at me and said, I'm scared. And I just felt so guilty. But it's what he wanted. So he's still scared. I never told him how the hero got away. No, I did. I did immediately. However, yeah, proof. So, like, by that logic, what if you know what's going to happen in the end? Yeah. So, like, if you watch a movie twice. John dies at the end? What? John dies at the end? No? Why are you laughing? I feel like I'm missing something. What? Oh. Say it louder. Are you Yeah. Okay, so why would you watch it again? I mean, I've watched Game of Thrones like four times. So yeah. obviously there's some kind of... Did you watch SNL, by the way? No. You know, Kit Harrington was the host. Yeah, I know. I was busy. 
Yeah. God. I couldn't pencil it in. Why would you wash something twice? If, like, so tell me why. Okay, why would you, so, but before you can watch something twice, you watch something once. Well, maybe there's some kind of, like, joy in, like, knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, I think there's joy in knowing more than the main character knows. In other words, one thing that Hitchcock said was, tell the audience what you're going to do and make them wonder how. That's another rule of Hitchcock's. And uh, another rule of theater, which is similar to Hitchcock's, is that the audience wants to be surprised, but surprised in a way that it expects. So that's a way, that's a way of, of talking about some aspects of this paradox. But the, the, so this aspect of the paradox is you want what you want, and that's revealed utility, right? You want what you want, and yet some of what you want is not to get what you want too easily. So to be surprised in a way that you expect, that's almost a contradiction, but it makes sense, right? Wouldn't you say that that's, that's actually a pretty good insight into a certain kind of movie or show? That is, especially if you know it's the Marvel Universe or something like that. You're, you want to be surprised, but you, all, you certainly don't want disaster, even though your characters are threatened with disaster, you expect that they're going to survive, right? And when they don't survive, when you know that certain characters are going to die, it's like people go into the movie knowing this is the character when X dies, when superhero X dies. It's really rare that you're going to be surprised. Yeah, Ian. Well, <clears throat> on that specific note, um, Spoiler alert for Avengers Infinity War. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Like, Go for it. <laughs> You've already seen it? No, I'm on season five of Game of, Game of Thrones. Oh, you're on season five? Oh, my God. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Go on. I didn't. But, like, the end of the movie. <clears throat> Have you seen it? No. No? It's all right. But she's the end. Of the, okay? Like, a bunch of people die at the end. <laughs> yeah. And, but... So I wasn't expecting it when I saw it. Wait, I didn't tell you anything, you know. John dies at the end? No, that's not the John I'm oh talking about. Oh, my God, about. okay. I'm, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. Not at all. There's that's a movie it, called John Dies. There's a movie called John Dies at Got the it. End. And I you know what doesn't happen? spoilers for, like, the past, like, three months. It's really hard. Do you know there was a teacher in Belgium? Do you know about this? This was, like, three years ago. There's a newspaper article. Just one second. There's a newspaper article where this teacher of middle schoolers in Belgium, um, he had a really unruly classroom. And so he comes in one day, and he said, I have read all the books cover to cover up to that point. Actually, I think that was all the books, because he hasn't written one since then. And um, every time one of you misbehaves, I'm going to tell you the next character to die. And boy, did they stop. Just boom, like that. Um, so don't worry. I'm not, I'm, that's not the John. Okay. But like, I was just quoting, you know nothing, Jon Snow. That's what. Okay. Yeah. Just a bunch of the characters do die in Infinite yeah. War. Yeah. And, but it's still one of the highest grossing movies ever right. made. Huge success. So people were expecting it to go one way, and it went the full opposite direction. Yeah. And it's still... Yeah. People liked it. Well, so if they... 
<coughs> well, what's interesting is then there are two reasons they might have liked it. Uh, that No, no, sorry. You're saying that people liked it because they bought tickets for it. But they didn't know what was... So some people bought tickets not knowing what was going to happen. Yes. And they may have been very upset and angered. Other people bought tickets because, in some sense, they did know what was going to happen because people knew that, including me. So, so there they do know what's going to happen. And they still feel some, some, some mixture of, of anxiety and confidence. And there's a, there was, I actually have this on the door of my office, about 25 years ago, 20 years ago, something like that, there were two computer scientists who did an analysis of like the 400 top-selling suspense books in English ever written. And they basically, this was a precursor to, now what's, to what's now called distant reading. And what they did was they fed in the plots and they figured out 10 rules for a bestseller, for a suspense bestseller. And the, 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 the rules are great. They then, they then got an advance for a million dollars to write a bestseller based on the rules they figured out. And they wrote a book and it stunk and got nowhere. But they made a million dollars coming up with these 10 rules and the claim that they were not going to write a book that conformed to them. So one of the rules... Uh, like rules one and two, I can't remember all ten, but rules one and two, which I really love, are the hero is an expert, and then rule number two is the villain is an expert. So that one of the things is it's expert versus expert. That's uh, that's a really good storyline. That is, when the hero is an expert but the villain isn't, you have bad Sherlock Holmes. When the hero is an expert, but but the villain has been reading Sherlock Holmes, has been reading Watson, and is also an expert, that's when you get good Sherlock Holmes. That's when you get Moriarty and Mycroft. Um, another one is two of the team, that is the hero's team, must fall in love, and then corresponding to that rule is two of the team must die. So basically, what these ten rules tell you is, and I, I can bring them in if you guys are interested, but what these 10 rules tell you is essentially the ways we expect to be surprised. I don't know if you were here for, for that, but, the, but a 19th century or early 20th century playwright said of these kinds of stories, the audience wants to be surprised, but surprised in a way that it expects. Yeah. So wanting to be surprised in a way that you expect, where are those expectations? How do you expect things? Well, you go in expecting that something more or less like the villain will be an expert, that the hero figuring out what the villain is up to in the first five minutes is going, there's going to be a trick that, that the hero doesn't get, even though the hero is, is an expert enough to get it almost right at the start. And you may expect two of the team to fall in love without knowing that you're expecting that. And you may expect two of the team to die without knowing that you're expecting that. And of course, no real suspense story is going to follow all of these rules. And I think maybe one reason that their story crashed and burned so badly is that they did follow all those rules and they're not all consistent with each other. But Ultimately, they're not psychologically consistent. But what Prue is asking is, why do we watch things a second time? 
Why do we um, um, consume narrative more than once? Why is it still good the second time? Another way of asking this is why do people look at the end of a book sometimes? There are people who won't read even Harry Potter, for example, unless they know what's going to happen. And they will check to see whether the main character lives or not in a suspense novel. Is this an arty suspense novel where the main character dies? Because I really don't want that. Or is this a fun suspense novel where the main character lives? Because that's what I'm in the mood for. And people will look. They'll check it out to see if the main character lives or dies. Um, they'll check out to see if the romantic interest turns out to be the villain and so the love story you're hoping to get, you don't get. Or if the romantic interest turns out not to be the villain, but wrongly thought to be the villain so that the uh, main character can prevent that false assumption or prevent that, that false conclusion. So people do check that out. Um, to start, and that's the way that you expect part, or as Hitchcock says, tell the audience what you're going to do and make them wonder how. But all of this goes to the, the even more fundamental question, which is why do we like stories in which those who we want to see safe are put into danger? Why not skip the danger part? Why not just have them be safe from the beginning? So that Hansel and Gretel are taken out into the woods, and they're left with some lunch, and half an hour later, the stepmother and father come back and bring them home, having cut down some, some kindling for the fire, and then they have a nice warm dinner at the end. Why isn't that a good story? Yeah, so why is it that, that the alternative to boring seems to be anxiety? That is the, why isn't the alternative to boring something like pure pleasure? Hansel and Gretel went out into the woods and they found a house made of gingerbread full of jewels and gold and inside they found the body of a witch. But she was dead, so they buried her took the jewels and gold and ate the gingerbread and went home and they and their stepmother and father had plenty to eat for, from then on and they were all happy ever after. Is that boring? Yes. Yeah. But even though good things happen, even though as in the classic story they come back with much richer than they went away with, they are, they, good things have happened, but they're still, but it's still boring. We're only not bored when there's anxiety, when we're worried. So that seems to be the, the interesting human relationship to stories. I like how quickly it stops. Oh, hey, listen. OK. Yeah. Oh, were you going to say something? Well, well, that was just not but also, do you? What was that thing we talked about um, in like the Infinity class about like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon? Yeah, the Sublime. Yeah. Yeah. That's what that makes me think of. Exactly. Like, everyone dying in Avengers Infinity War is the equivalent of just like falling into the Grand Canyon. So how does that make sense? Okay, so if everyone dies, then that that's that's like uh, um, Battle Royal, the original Battle Royal. 
or like, um, is it Cloverfield? The movie where some kids go out into the woods and they all die. Um, the Blair Witch Project? The Blair Witch Project, yes, thank you. The Blair Witch Everyone Project. Everyone Cloverfield, too. But. Yeah. And I think they all die, or only one person survives Battle Royal, but I think they may all die in Battle Royal, in the original Japanese Battle Royal, uh, which is about 20 years ago. Um, so, yeah, that's a surprise, right? <laughs> and at some point you say, wow, that's amazing, they all die. Or Lord of the Flies, and then they all died. And the ship came and said, my goodness, they're all dead. But they were British children. They don't all die in Lord of the Flies. That's I the know, point. Like... Spoiler. They don't all die. <laughs> so the if everyone died in, in Infinity Wars, that would be like jumping to the Grand Canyon and dying. So what we're talking about is an 18th century idea about the, about the difference between the sublime and the beautiful. So we talked about Kant on the beautiful. And the beautiful is that, and we talked about Adam Smith on the beautiful. The beautiful is that which is harmonious, which gives us a sense of usefulness or utility as elegance. Like, look how well put together this is. Isn't that amazing? How clever or how um, economical this all is. But as Kant says, and this in a way is, is an amazing insight of Kant's, is that the beautiful is boring. That is, you look at it and, and it gives you a kind of pleasure, but a kind of pleasure that you don't care whether you're having or not. And that's a strong way of paraphrasing Kant and not a standard way, but it's really there. Um, when he calls it disinterested pleasure, he says it's a pleasure that you don't care whether you're having or not. And this eventually leads him to the claim that if you like the beautiful, you're doing it for moral reasons. That is, you are doing it because you are making a decision to like what's beautiful rather than the beautiful being something that would be something that you liked no matter what. A decision to like the beautiful, says Kant, is a moral decision. And that's why it's actually a very important part of his project as a, as a philosopher. Um, However, the beautiful by itself is something that you can take or leave. It's no one ever said to themselves, wow, that flower is beautiful. I wish I didn't have to go inside this, this movie theater to watch Infinity Wars now because I could look at this flower all day, said no one ever. So that for Kant, that's a kind of really interesting thing about the beautiful is that it's elegant, but we can take it or leave it. The sublime, and we didn't talk about that in this class, but we did talk about it in the infinity class, the sublime for Kant is the other aesthetic experience you can have than the beautiful. And the sublime is a very, very different aesthetic experience. And for Kant, he connects it to fear. He's not the only one. He's interested in the connection of the sublime to fear. So his example might be, it's not his example, but uh, an Arizona version of his example is you go to the edge of the Grand Canyon. Has anyone seen the Grand Canyon? So it's pretty amazing. And um, if you think of the word awesome, the word awesome is actually an updated version of the word awful. And our word awful can mean either something which is terrible 
or it can mean something that fills you with awe. And the fact that those two things go together means that somehow awe can be terrifying, or that terror can turn to awe if the scary part of the terror is removed. So it's still, or, or lessened, is less terrifying than it was. In fact, the word, as awesome comes from awful, does anyone know what word comes from terrifying? That Terrific. So when you say something is terrific, that used to mean terrifying. It used to be an exact synonym for terrifying. And the fact that it came to mean something good, wow, that's terrific. Um, Tom Seaver was known as Tommy Terrific. The fact that something is terrific means that you're getting all the intensity of terror, but it's somehow tempered or moderated enough that instead it turns into something terrific. So Kant's example, or our, an example of that, would be going looking at the Grand Canyon and just being stunned. No matter what you've heard about it, you'll be stunned by it. No matter how much you are expecting to be stunned, um, you know that experience where you're expecting to be stunned and therefore expecting to be disappointed? Has everyone had that experience? So you won't be disappointed by the Grand Canyon. And that's an amazing thing, that it's a place that you won't be disappointed by. No matter how much you expect it to be amazing, it's going to be more amazing than you can possibly expect. And so for Kant, what happens is, and as I say, this isn't, Kant doesn't start here. Um, this is actually Burke. Uh, I'm, I don't even have to give you the Kantian version. I can give you the Burkean version. Is that Burke says beauty gives you pleasure. That when you see something beautiful, it gives you pleasure. That's a lovely flower, and now there's been a nice flower in my day, and um, that's given me some pleasure. The sublime, says Burke, gives you, do you remember what he calls it, Prue? Not pleasure, but delight. So delight is not a synonym for pleasure. Delight is a sense of safety when you were in danger. So you can think of the, of the beautiful as like, there's a nice little hill, and I'll climb it, and now I'm a little higher than I was, and that's nice. The sublime is like bungee jumping. That is, you plunge way deep down into something terrible, and then you bounce back. And it's the bounce back that, for Kant, is the experience of delight. Uh, excuse me, not for Kant. It is for Kant, but for Burke is the experience of delight. So if you imagine this way, this is normal, everyday feeling. Nothing much is going on. Then um, you go to your um, imagining money class, and you think it's a little bit better, but so it's just going along a little bit better. Um, and then you see a drawing on the board, and your day gets a little bit better, because of this beautiful drawing on the board. Um, that is neutral. This is pleasure. This is pleasure. The sublime is you're driving to the Grand Canyon, and then you see it, and it's holy shit. And you are filled with terror, which is a negative emotion. It's like I could fall into that, and I would be lost in my own death before I even hit the bottom. 
and there would be nothing to do, and I couldn't even imagine the splat because it's so far away, but it's utterly terrifying. And then you realize that that's not what's happening, that you're looking but not falling. You could fall, but you're not falling, and you bounce back. So for Burke, it's a question of absolute values at this point. So the absolute value of here to here, the absolute value of that rise is, let's say, 1. The absolute value here is that there's a, is you end up where you were, but the negative fall is, let's say, 100. But then the absolute value back is plus 100. So the beautiful gives you plus 1. And the sublime gives you plus 100. And even though you're not ending up better than you were, the beautiful, you actually go up one. The sublime, you're just back to where you were. But even so, you've had an experience of plus 100 rather than an experience of plus 1. And so the sublime is a much more powerful aesthetic experience than the experience of the beautiful. So, Prue, what were you going to say? So, can you, like, just to bring it back to what we're supposed to be talking about? Yeah. But could you think of, like, the sublime as, like, gambling? Yes. Because a lot of times, like, you don't actually end up winning money, but, like, yeah. the feeling of, like, going down yes. money and then coming back, and then that's, like, I don't know, proper financial management. Yeah, or that's working um, for minimum wage in a restaurant in Las Vegas. So you have people in, who live in Las Vegas, where, which, is, which is a very, um, it's, it's a place of great poverty. There are jobs there, but they're all minimum wage jobs. And um, people who live in Las Vegas, they don't gamble on the whole because they know, what, they know how the place works. And so they have these minimum wage jobs, and you know, right in the next room, um, there's a flow of insane amounts of money. The amount of money that changes hands on a single day in Las Vegas is tremendous. Um, it's just going back and forth. So we talked a little bit about velocity of money in this class earlier on. Um, there's, a, there's a study that um, surprised people that banks did a while ago which is how often a bill, it actually surprised the banks, how often does a piece of money, does a bill, does a dollar bill or a five dollar bill or a ten dollar bill, you guys don't use them anymore I know, but this is back in the day when people use cash, how often does it change hands between when it leaves the bank and when it returns to the bank. So what happens is you cash a check at a bank, you get some cash, or you go to an ATM, you get some cash. You give that cash to someone. They give it to someone else, they give it to someone else, they give it to someone else. How long before it gets redeposited in a bank? How many times does it change hands? Anyone know? What's a guess? $10 bill will change hands how often before it gets back to, to a bank? Five times. Five times. What do you think, Bruce? 20. Okay. Owner, what do you think? One. What? I think maybe like 50 or something. Okay. Anyone else? I think more than that, if it's a $10 bill. More than 50 times yeah. before it goes back to the bank. Anyone else? We're talking about like a tangible $10 bill, right? Yeah. Because like, like, 
a ten dollar bill. Not really a large amount to like deposit. So. No, 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 no. I mean, hundred dollar bills you might expect would not um, exchange hands as much unless they're they're offshore where they exchange hands forever and never go to banks, right? If you guys read that article that I sent you about the export of hundred dollar bills, but um, no ten dollar bills in the United States. So we have five is the low estimate and over fifty is the high estimate. Yeah. Okay. So the answer is two. On average, it surprised everyone. It surprised everyone, because what happens is you get a ten dollar bill and you may give it to. Um, a friend or a taxi driver, but eventually gets to a store really fast. Someone spends it at a store, and that night the store deposits its money in the bank. And so the amount of times, it, this surprised the federal government. The Federal Reserve did this, and um, they had way, like you guys, they had way overestimated how, how often money changed hands before completing the circuit and going back to the bank. And that isn't true in Las Vegas. In Las Vegas, the money is changing hands hundreds of times. If you go to a slot machine, what happens when someone plays the shop slots is if you go in with $100 worth of quarters and play the slots, you will eventually lose that $100 if you keep playing and playing and playing. You will eventually lose that $100. But before you lose that $100, Maybe thirty or forty thousand dollars will have gone through your hands. That is, you'll put a quarter in, you'll get nothing. You'll put a quarter in, you'll get nothing. You'll put a quarter in, you'll win two dollars. Eventually, you'll put those two dollars in, and you'll get nothing. You'll put another quarter in, and over the course of going through the hundred dollars, you're losing it irregularly and slowly. And over the course of all that time, there's just a kind of cascade of money feeding itself back into the slot machine. So the machine is giving you money that you're putting back in the machine, which it's giving you that you're putting back in the machine. And on average and very, very slowly, it's giving you less money that you're put than you're putting in. Um, they don't have these ads anymore, but they used to have billboards when you got to Connecticut. Um, to, and they, I think they actually do have these in Nevada still, where they tell you how, what percentage of money, how loose the slots are. Do people know what loose slots are? That's a, Whitehead uses that term. So loose slots basically means um, that there's a really good chance that if you put money into a slot machine, you'll get money out. That if you put in a dollar, you have a really good chance of winning money on that dollar. They're much looser, for example, than playing the numbers. The numbers are your expected return on playing the numbers is 60%. Your anyone know your expected return on playing the lottery? It's 40% in Massachusetts by law. The expected return is 40%. That includes the large lottery winners. So if you're not a large winner, you'll be getting back something like 30% of what you put in to the lottery. But so if you think of, of slot machines as like lotteries, which is what they are, what you're doing is um, spending money on a lottery ticket, occasionally winning, and using everyone uses their lottery winnings to buy more lottery tickets. 
and that is the way the, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts wants it to be. That's how the slot machines work also. But what that means is that you are present in a huge stream and circuit of money and so people who are, live in Las Vegas, what they're doing is they are making minimum wage in a room that's next door to a room where people who are poorer than they are, or as poor as they are but who are visiting, are seeing and enjoying the experience of having tens of thousands of dollars go through their hands. The problem is they don't have they they only have access to a little bit of money of that money at a time, so tens of thousands of dollars going through their hands, but they can only touch a little bit. You can feel that this is what's going on in the roulette in Roulettenburg in the Gambler, that all the money that grandmother wins and then loses, all the money that the narrator um, Alexier wins and then loses, tons and tons of money but they're still left with nothing. It's like the money is a roller coaster that they ride, and it looks like they're the ones who are possessing the money, winning the money, deciding what to do with the money, but it, in fact, that's a reverse of what's really happening. So the beautiful, in monetary terms, would be something like you make an honest living, and you go home, and you pay no attention to the tons and tons of money that is circulating in the casino next door. And the sublime is, God, that's a lot of money. And it's all there. And there's just millions and millions of dollars that are circulating right next to the, um, uh, the, the fast food place that you're working in. So the beautiful, you go up one. The sublime, you go down 100, and then maybe up 95. And so you get the experience of those absolute values. And you certainly get the experience of going up 95. And, but you're still down 5 in the end. So it's not that you lose. So you lose a ton of money, but you win a ton of money in Las Vegas. That's the way it's designed, is you lose a ton, but you also win a ton. And ultimately, you lose a little bit more than you win on average and it's designed just for that reason, and that's like the difference between the beautiful and the sublime. Okay, with narrative, it's a little bit the opposite. That is, it's like a good version of gambling, which is that you lose a ton and you win a ton in a suspense narrative, and it's just, I think it's what you were saying, Prue, right? That you lose a ton but win a ton in a suspense narrative, but if it ultimately ends happily, like, you know, really um, naive forms of suspense narrative, which are the, or, or fundamental forms of suspense narrative, if it ultimately ends happily, then it's, you get the absolute value of how far down you've gone, how bad things have gotten, and how great the rescue is. So you bounce back, Plus, you get the rom-com end as well. So you have the two characters. If you take something like um, um, Hitchcock's great movie, North by Northwest, um, 
you have a character who's doing really well in life, as he puts it. This is Roger O. Thornhill has the great line where he says, um, two ex-wives and three bartenders depend upon me. Um, you can't kidnap me because, because they need me. Um, and at the end, he escapes. And not only does he escape, but he's remarried um, to someone finally really interesting. He's been made interesting. He starts out as a boring person. He's made an interesting person, and he marries something, someone interesting. So things are okay. Then they are really perilous and in danger, and then they end up even more okay than they started. Not much more okay, but the whole point is you couldn't tell the story of North by Northwest as Roger Thornhill meets Eve Kendall, and they get married, so it's good boring. So instead, you tell the story as Roger Thornhill gets kidnapped and almost killed, and he meets Eve Kendall, who may be a spy, and he doesn't know whether to trust her or not, but he comes more and more to trust her, and at the end, they get married, and it's okay. So this is a boring story. This is an interesting story. So again, the psychological question is why, and this is what Ainsley is trying to answer, why do we like to lose and then win rather than just winning a little bit? Why do, because winning a little bit, that's going to work. That's working. That's everyday life. Why do we prefer to lose a lot and then win maybe a little bit more than we lost? That suspense narrative. Or maybe even a little bit less than we lost, but it was still worth it because we had a good time. Why do we prefer that? What's the human psychology that makes us prefer that? And it's a psychology of gambling and a psychology of storytelling. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more about the MacGuffin on Wednesday. I was wondering about that. Yeah, so say what happens in figures. Like someone you really like, they go for the triple accent, and you go, don't do it. Yeah. But then, like, so it is a bit like this, and then they execute it perfectly. And then, so, you know, you've got, but there's skill that you are appreciating as well, so that maybe is more yeah, and that's where we get to costly signaling, risk taking, and then um, justified risk taking is costly signaling. So I mean, like it doesn't feel like it's exactly this, which is that you just enjoy the possibility of loss. You actually enjoy the genuine display of skill and the, yeah, uh, but that's the bounce back. So the possibility of losses, don't do it, and then the bounce back is, whoa, you're that good. Yeah, three-point shots, same thing in basketball, right? Yeah. I, I'm just interested in how, like, because he comes very close, Ainsley, I feel like sometimes he wheels towards talking about things that have uh, their own value because it's actually a genuine skill that's being, like, some, some, like when you're good at you wouldn't cheat at, uh, what was it? Solitaire. Solitaire, yeah. Because yeah. Like, the, the point is that you don't want to cheat, not because it's, it's part of that you want to have the possibility of loss, but yeah. you, you want to be good at it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I wonder whether gambling is a kind of cheap version of that, or like a guy shouldn't say that. No, I think it is. No, I, d I definitely do. And it's also why people want... <coughs> I mean, I think that, that Whitehead is really good at describing that, why 
um, people want, and but Dostoevsky's also good at it. Why people want it to be a game of skill, you know, or want to think, you know, that's why poker is so attractive. But Dostoevsky or Alexei even wants roulette somehow to um, have some connection to skill. The skill might simply be the skill of whatever in self-confidence feels like a skill in um, believing that in, in um, a confident belief in yourself and in your own luck what feels skillful in that or maybe self-confidence is actually the right word not skill but skill gives you confidence but the real thing is confidence and, and sometimes like what's really amazing in figure skating is that they actually so there's supposed to be a scale but they shatter the scale Yes. So there's a kind of like, and they create and like it's it's actually more than a perfect. Right. Because it's more than what was expected. Right. Yeah. And you could say that's actually a really horrible competition because they just make it that much more difficult. Yeah. For the next year's yeah. Yeah. Competition. The people who first hit whatever it is they first hit. Yeah. That's they right. They all get together figure skates and they will just keep the standards low, but that would be terrible. Yes, it would. <laughs>